Tonight I'd like to speak about one of the most important laws which govern the unfolding of our lives. In the teachings of the Buddha, this is called the law of karma. Karma means volitional activity or the motive behind our actions. And it's this motive behind an act which has the power to bring about certain kinds of results. It's as if in every moment of volition, that moment of volition has a potential energy to bear certain fruit. So it's not the action itself which determines the karmic result, but the motive behind it. So for example, if we act motivated by the factors of greed or hatred or delusion, it's those unwholesome mind states in the motivation which bring about a painful result. And if we act based on generosity or love or wisdom, it's those wholesome factors in our motivation which bring about a pleasant result. As an example of the distinction between the motive and the act, there's a story of a monk in the Buddha's time who was blind. And he was doing the walking meditation up and down. As he was walking, he was unknowingly stepping on ants and killing them. This monk was said to have been fully enlightened in our hunt. The other monks went running to the Buddha saying, how can this be? How can this fully enlightened being be killing ants? And it's in that context that the Buddha explained that there was no unwholesome motive in the mind. And so there was no unwholesome karma being created. The quality of our mind in each moment creates our present experience, creates our present reality. Not only does it determine or condition how we view things or how we experience things in the moment, but it also habituates or conditions the mind to certain patterns or habits in the future. As we practice certain mind states, and throughout our lives we find ourselves practicing different ones, come to a retreat and we're practicing mindfulness and concentration and effort. In different life situations, we might be practicing greed or practicing anger or practicing fear. That is, every time a mind state arises, and we reinforce it, so we're cultivating that particular state which conditions the reality in that moment, and also sets the conditioning or sets the pattern for that same mind state to arise again in the future. So you can begin to see the emergence of personality through the practicing or habituating of particular factors of mind. 
In the Buddhist cosmology, this is talked about in terms of the emergence of the six realms of existence. And you can think of these six realms in two ways. One, as different psychological states, which we all experience during our lives. You can also think or understand it as it's described very often in the texts of actual planes of existence where beings take rebirth. What are these six realms of existence that emerge out of the cultivation of different mind states? The hell realm, the lowest of the realms of suffering, conditioned by hatred. When the mind is filled with hatred and violence, violent anger, over and over again, when that force, when that factor of mind becomes strong, becomes predominant, it creates the condition of that reality, of a, of a hell world. And it's obvious to view it or experience it in oneself at the time of those factors. And it's not so difficult to imagine the possibility that the repetitive pattern of that that mental state creates an actual plane of existence where that's the predominant quality. There's a realm which is described as the realm of hungry ghosts. That's another of the worlds of suffering. And hungry ghosts are beings whose minds are strongly conditioned by the factor of greed. When we practice greed, compulsive desire, unsatiable desire over and over and over again, and that factor becomes strong in the mind, we begin to live in the realm as a human being, perhaps in the next life, we live in the realm of the hungry ghosts. And they're described as beings very graphically. One, one group of them as beings with huge bodies and pinhole mouths. And so no matter how much is taken in, there's never the feeling of being satisfied. You can see that that's how the force of desire, that's how the force of greed works. That's the reality that we create to the karmic result of unrestrained greed, unrestrained lust. There's a realm of, it's called the Asuras or the demons. They're beings conditioned very strongly by desire and fear. When those factors are strong in the mind, it creates a, it creates a reality. The animal realm, the first of the other realms of existence that we can actually see and experience ourselves, for those of us who don't have psychic power necessary to see the other realms. The animal realm is conditioned by a dullness of mind. When we allow our minds to become very dull, very uninquiring, we create that condition of ignorance for ourselves. I know we all 
have our favorite examples of animals who have risen above the usual conditioning of dullness. Lassie was a great favorite. (laughs) But in terms of the possibilities of expanded consciousness, generally speaking, within that realm, there's a, a limitation involved. There's the hell realms and the hungry ghosts and the demons or asuras, the animals. The first of the happy planes of existence, our realm, the human realm. (laughs) And it may not always feel like a happy realm of existence, but relative to the others, for the most part, we have more happiness, more pleasure in our lives than suffering and pain. What's this conditioned by? All the realms, and again, whether you see it as psychological states within a lifetime, or you understand it as actual planes of existence, what conditions our experience as human beings and really characterizes this level of consciousness are the qualities of generosity and morality. That is, basic restraint from harming and the ability to give, the ability to share. The development of generosity and morality conditions not only the human plane, but also a whole, a whole group of planes of existence called the deva realms, or heavenly realms. And the description of these realms are wonderful, beings with bodies of light and sporting in pleasure groves, and with celestial music and celestial food. Very refined bodies. They don't sit with pains in their knees and their backs. <laughs> so that beings are born there at the age, born spontaneously, not through the process of being in a womb. Just, if your rebirth takes you there, you appear spontaneously at age 16 or 17, ready to sport. (laughs) (laughs) The conditions for that, right, the karmic conditions, and you can see it in the mind, are the, are the fruit of cultivating generosity, that is non-greed, and cultivating morality, a virtue which is not hatred. And as we do that, even in the human realm, you see that it creates a mind space, a heavenly mind space, okay? one that's very composed, very open, very spacious, very loving. The highest plane of existence, or the highest realm, is that which in the text is described as the Brahma realms. And those are planes of existence of beings who have cultivated to a very high extent the levels of samadhi, or concentration. It's possible to develop a power of mind in which the mind is totally absorbed in an object. So we're not aware of anything through the sense doors. The mind has full absorption. These states 
are described as being ones of tremendous happiness and bliss and rapture. So people experience that as their practice gets deeper and also as the fruit, the karmic fruit, in other planes of existence. People who have established that level of concentration take rebirth in these, in these Brahmic realms. What's interesting to contemplate in understanding these different realms of mind is the vastness of possibility for our own evolution and devolution. It goes both ways, depending on what is being cultivated. Because mostly we, when we don't contemplate or don't investigate the nature and the range and the vastness of mind, very often we get on a very narrow track of where our lives are going and what's possible. Just to begin to explore the possibility of a much wider range of experience. The the universe of the mind is so vast and so wide and so broad and so deep. And in each moment, we are conditioning one or another of these realms. It's almost like the world or our lives are like a dream being being dreamt by the force of karma. This law which governs the unfolding of our experience. Somebody once came to the Buddha and he said, you know, I see so many people in the world and their circumstances are so different. Some are rich, some are poor, some are beautiful, some are not, some are healthy, some are ill, some have long lives, some have short lives, some are wise, some are stupid. What, what's the reason for such vast differences in circumstances and characteristics? And in his reply, the Buddha gave an, a short exposition of different kinds of action with the results that they bring, with the karmic results. And it's so helpful to understand how our actions create certain results, because then we have a power in our lives to fashion our lives, to fashion our destiny, when we understand the laws governing the unfolding. He said that long life is conditioned by not killing. When we cultivate that aspect, the virtue of morality, of not killing other beings, the karmic fruit of that is long life. When we do kill, take the lives of other beings, the karmic fruit is short life. Good health is conditioned karmically by non-harming. When we treat other beings, other living beings with respect, the karmic fruit is good health. When we harm other beings, the karmic fruit is ill health. In this, in this teaching, the Buddha described how harmonious speech, loving speech, loving words, 
are the karmic cause of beauty, physical beauty, and how harsh speech and abusive language is the karmic cause of ugliness. Generosity being the cause of abundance and greed being the cause of poverty. You can see how all of our actions are are not only cultivating the particular reality in the present, but also planting the seeds for the future unfolding experience. The investigating mind, the mind that's inquiring into the nature of things, is the karmic cause of wisdom. And the uninquiring mind, the mind that just goes along, living out its life, its conditioned, habituated patterns, without questioning, without looking, without investigating, the karmic fruit of that is dullness. When we understand how karma is working, it places a great responsibility on ourselves because we realize that we are the heirs of our own actions. It's not that some great supreme being has destined us to live one kind of life or another, but rather we are creating our own lives. In one of the famous collection of verses of the, of the Buddhist teachings, the Dhammapada, the opening chapter, the opening verse, says, mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is the forerunner of all things. That in each moment, we are creating the reality of that moment and also the conditions for producing future result. And it said that basic wrong view, basic misunderstanding, is that misunderstanding which says that action does not bring about result. And it's interesting, in our culture, there's, for the most part, basic wrong view. Because we don't have the sense that our actions are seeds, that each mind moment of motivation, of intention, is a powerful moment. And we tend more to think of actions as being isolated events that don't, that don't in some way come back to us. When we reflect on the law of karma and realize that everything we do, every action we do, brings about a certain result, depending on the motive of our action, then we begin to take great care. We begin to take responsibility for our lives. There are two aspects of mindfulness which have to do with the reflection on this law of karma. 
In these two aspects, it's called clear comprehension and suitability of purpose. Clear comprehension means that we're clearly aware of what we're doing. How many times have you found yourselves in the middle of an action before you became aware of what you were doing? Now, it's difficult to be aware just from the beginning, to be aware of the intention behind the action. It takes a lot of practice and a lot of sensitivity. So often we find ourselves in the middle of doing something. Sometimes it's fortunate if we find ourselves in the middle. Sometimes the actions are already completed before we awaken to what we're doing. That's the absence of clear comprehension. So it's important to develop that awareness of mind a quality of mindfulness, so we actually see what it is that's happening, what our actions are, what our motives are. And suitability of purpose. Even when we become aware that we're about to do something, there's a quality of wise reflection that's necessary. Is this a suitable action? Is it going to lead to the place that we want to go to? We should not undervalue or underestimate the power of our small actions. Because each little action is reconditioning the mind again. It's sort of like a bucket of water, a bucket underneath a faucet that's dripping, just drop by drop. And you look from drop to drop and it seems insignificant seems that each drop doesn't matter very much. But the bucket stays there, and drop by drop, it gets filled. In the same way, we are filling our mind in each moment. Moment by moment, these qualities of mind are being cultivated and developed and strengthened. So we should not ignore both the small moments of desire or greed or anger or hatred, because they are cultivating that side of the mind, those forces of the mind, nor should we think that small acts of generosity or restraint or love or kindness are insignificant. Because drop by drop, the bucket gets filled. Drop by drop, the mind becomes very strong. The mind becomes generous, it becomes loving becomes wise. Have you reflected, just in the course of either the retreat or one's daily life, exactly where it is that we want to go in our lives. What direction are we going in? Because when we have a clear sense of purpose in our lives, a context of understanding, then it's possible to align our actions with that sense of purpose, that sense of meaning. But if we don't have that sense, 
our actions are not in alignment and so they're weakened. That kind of reflection in terms of how we want to direct our life energy. What would we have liked to have completed or done or finished as we finish our lives? It's important to have that sense of, it's a sense of direction. And the direction is not so much a place that we're going to, but rather the possibility of a direction of greater understanding, greater opening. A few years ago, the Dalai Lama was here in this country and he came to the center. We heard that around the time of that visit, he had given a talk in Boston. He was talking to basically the Buddhist community in in Boston. And he said something very startling for somebody of the Buddhist tradition. He said that if you were If you had a choice between acting on the law of karma or that of the idea of emptiness, it would be better to act on the law of karma. This is startling from a Buddhist perspective because the concept of emptiness is so central, meaning emptiness of self. No I, no me, no ego. This egolessness or selflessness is absolutely at the heart of the practice in the Buddhist teachings. Yet here's the Dalai Lama saying, it would be better to pay attention to the law of karma than emptiness. Why did he say that? It's easy to misuse the law of emptiness oh, it's all emptiness, so it doesn't matter very much what I do. It's all equal, I can do anything, it doesn't matter. Tremendous mistake. It would be better to let emptiness take care of itself (laughs) and pay attention to the karmic consequences of our actions. When we understand karma, when we understand that we are creating our own reality, this leads to a sense of great compassion. Because when we see somebody then who is doing something that is harmful or hurtful or unskillful, instead of the usual response of getting angry at them for doing that, we can drop to a different level, a deeper level, and see that that person is doing something harmful or hurtful out of their own ignorance. They're creating unwholesome karma for themselves, which is planting the seeds of pain and suffering, and they're doing it unknowingly, because they don't understand. When we can relate to unskillful action as coming from a place of ignorance, our response then becomes one of a response of compassion rather than anger. And it doesn't mean necessarily just sitting back and not doing anything. Sometimes some very strong interventionist action may be necessary or may not. 
but it will be coming from a place of our understanding, of our compassion for the ignorance, rather than from our anger at the action. I'll tell you a few karma stories which will illustrate some various aspects of how this works. Each mind moment brings about its own result. And so there was a story of a person in the time of the Buddha who gave food, who offered food to an arhant, a fully enlightened being. And it's said that offering food to someone who has totally purified their minds is a very powerful act. The force of purity of the receiver intensifies the energy of the karma. So this person offered food to this enlightened being, but immediately afterwards regretted it, thought, why did I give food to this beggar? It was useless. I shouldn't have done it. Okay, what was the karmic fruit of that little sequence? As the story goes, it said that this person was reborn as a millionaire seven lifetimes in a row. Just from that one act of offering food to, a, to an enlightened being. Powerful result. The fruit of the regret, the mind moments of regret, were that as a millionaire in those seven lifetimes, he had the mind state of a miser. And so could not enjoy the fruit, the, uh, the wholesome fruit. It's like divine justice. <laughs> There's a little lesson in this story. The lesson being, if you offer food to a fully enlightened being, (laughs) that when we do something wholesome, when we do an action that's wholesome, it makes it even more powerful if if we surround that act with wholesome thoughts, with thoughts that rejoice in the action rather than regret it.
and quite independently of whatever karmic fruit accrues from that, it's interesting to notice the quality of your experience in the moment when you surround good actions, actions of love, of generosity, of kindness, of practice, of meditation, when you surround those moments with feelings and thoughts of delight, of happiness, of joy, it intensifies, it's an intensifier of the energy of the experience. Karma at the time of death, very important, because it's the quality of the dying moment that conditions rebirth that conditions the plane of existence where rebirth happens. And it's said that there are four kinds of karma that operate at the time of death. The first one, the one that's predominant, is called heavy karma. And there's both good and bad heavy karma. If you kill your mother or father, you wound the Buddha or kill an enlightened being, it's not good. <laughs> so don't do that. <laughs> or cause a schism in the, in the Sangha. Not good action. Regardless of what else one has done, that karma takes precedence and that's, you bear the fruit of that. You don't go to a good place. <laughs> there's, there's good, there's heavy karma, wholesome also. And that is the force of absorption, of that deep concentration, which automatically brings about birth in the Brahma realms of existence. There's also a heavy, wholesome karma, that is those, those people who have attained to any of the stages of enlightenment, even the first glimpse, the first stage of glimpsing the unconditioned or nirvana, it closes the lower realms. Just that that first moment of opening or understanding and that level has the karmic force to close off the possibility of rebirth in any of the lower realms. So it's a very powerful, it's a very powerful moment and has a powerful force in the unfolding of our destinies. Because it closes the door to those realms of suffering. So regardless of what else one has done, if one has attained to that realization, to that opening, that's a heavy, wholesome karma. And it bears its fruit at the time of death. If we have not experienced either a wholesome or unwholesome heavy karma, the next kind of situation that determines rebirth is called proximate karma. That is the force of the deed that we happen to do or experience just at the time of dying. There's a story about proximate karma. It seems that there was this thief who had spent his whole life stealing, creating a lot of unwholesome fruit. And he was finally caught and the king, you know, at that time, needed out the punishment, and he was about to be hanged. And just as he was on the scaffold, and 
with the noose around his neck, he happened to see a monk walking by, and he was reminded of once, you know, in this whole lifetime of thievery, one time he had offered food. And that was his dying thought, just as he had that thought that... <laughs> because that was the dying thought. You know, in that moment, he was reborn in the heaven realms, the Deva realms. He took the spontaneous birth you know, in these celestial realms. He was quite surprised. And <laughs> 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 he sort of looked back, you know, how did this happen? And he looked back, one of the powers of these celestial beings, the power of seeing past births, he looked back and he saw what had happened in the circumstance. It motivated him tremendously uh, to practice. And it said that he got enlightened in that, in that Deva realm. Because even though proximate karma, or the karma at the time of death, plays a very powerful role, it doesn't erase everything else we've done. It just postpones it until the proper opportunity. There's the heavy karma, there's the proximate karma, but suppose we're dying and there's no particular, no particular strong event that stands out. Then what automatically comes to mind in the dying moment, and this is what often is the most relevant for us. What comes to mind, either as an image or a sign, it's called habituated karma, that which we've done a lot in our lives. Those actions which we've done over and over again at the time of our death appear in the mind as a certain kind of sign or image. So, for example, somebody who's been involved in a lot of killing might at the time of the death see whatever, a gun or a knife or blood. Right? And then that's, that's an indication of the destiny of the rebirth. People who have sat a lot, you know, just done a lot of meditation. You might see a zafu. And so the habitual karma is very important, not only for you know, the, the fruit in the moment and the long-term result, but also because it's a powerful force at the time of death. And if there's not heavy karma, and not proximate karma, and not habitual karma, then it's just random. Some random past event will come into the mind and determine the next existence. Just maybe to help as a kind of uh, image, which might help you remember this. The example that's given is of uh, a barn full of cattle. Right? And in the morning, the door is open, and the first one out is going to be the big heavy bull. It you know, storms his way out. And if there's no big heavy bull, then the cow just next to the door is going to get up and go out. And if there's not one that's just next to the door, then it's one that habitually goes out first. And if there's not one that habitually goes out first, then any one of them may go out. And that's 
that's the hierarchy of karmas at the time of death. It's very important to contemplate this. And part of the Buddhist teachings is a reflection on the preciousness of human birth. It's said to be extremely rare and precious and difficult to take birth as a human being. It's the result for all of us of a strong accumulation of wholesome past karma. The simile which is given to illustrate how difficult it is to take human rebirth once we've taken birth in one of the lower realms. It's the image of a yoke of wood floating on a huge ocean, floating on the Pacific. One yoke of wood just tossed about by the winds. And there's a blind turtle who lives at the bottom of the ocean. And once every hundred years, the blind turtle surfaces. The likelihood of that turtle surfacing at exactly the point where the yoke of wood is and sticking its head through the yoke is said to be greater (laughs) than the likelihood of a being in the lower realms again taking birth as a human. Why? Because in those realms of suffering, the suffering is so intense and they've been conditioned by such strong unwholesome forces, by hatred and greed and lust and fear. And the suffering in the realms is so intense that the mind reacts in those habituated ways. It's very difficult to again create the wholesomeness of mind to take rebirth in this plane. And so over and over again in the teachings in all of the traditions, there's this tremendous emphasis placed on the reflection of how rare and precious this particular birth is and not to, not to waste it, to really cultivate seeds of understanding, seeds of generosity, seeds of love, to take responsibility for the preciousness of it. I'd like to talk a little bit about the relative power of different kinds of actions. In an act of generosity, in an act of giving, the karma of the act is determined, the the power of the act is determined by three things. It's determined by the purity of the giver, by the purity of the receiver, and by the purity of the gift, whether it was rightfully gotten or not. If all three are very pure, the act becomes very powerful. As I mentioned, if we give to someone who is fully enlightened, whose mind is free of defilement, free of greed, and free of hatred, and free of ignorance, you, you might imagine it almost as this very intense energy field which we're connecting with. So it's, it's very potent. It's said that it's tremendously fruitful acts of generosity 
to beings who are free of defilement. But greater than an act of giving, it said to the Buddha and the whole order of enlightened monks and nuns, greater than that, and that's a tremendously powerful gift, is one moment of a mind fully concentrated on metta, on loving-kindness. So strong is the force of love, of loving-kindness, that it makes that moment many times more powerful than the gift, which itself was, was very potent. And it's said that many times more powerful than the mind fully concentrated in the feeling of love is one mind moment of seeing clearly, seeing very clearly, the arising and passing away of phenomena, of seeing impermanence moment to moment, much more powerful even in that moment of loving kindness. Why is that? Because one moment of seeing the rising and passing away of phenomena, of experiencing it deeply and fully, is the seed of liberation, is the seed of freedom. Because when we see that, when we understand it, it's the beginning of the whole deconditioning of attachment and grasping. And so you may have the sense, as you sit here hour after hour, you know, that you're struggling with the pains and the the aches and the wandering mind, but there's something extremely forceful that's happening in the mind. The, The power, the karmic power of meditation practice is so deep because we're cultivating this insight into impermanence. So it's not insignificant. Like every sitting, every walking in which we're seeing that clearly, tremendous force is being generated. Or another way of of seeing it would be as if we plant seeds very deep into our mind seeds of insight, seeds of wisdom. And at first they're just small seeds. You know, and we don't even we don't even not aware of their of their germinating and sprouting. But those seeds are in there. And the more practice we do, we we cultivate, we support, and these seeds begin to sprout and to grow. On the level of the meditation practice, on what we're doing, you can understand very immediately how karma is working. And that is, we experience pleasant feelings and unpleasant feelings as karmic results. Why are you sitting with a pain in your knee? Because five lifetimes ago, you kicked somebody. (laughs) I don't know exactly, but... (laughs) The feelings that we experience, of painful or pleasant, are karmic results. How we react to them is the new karma that we're creating. And so if we have a painful feeling and we react with aversion, in that reaction we are creating 
the present karma for future pain because we're reacting with an unwholesome mindset, with aversion, with hatred, with dislike. If there's a pleasant feeling, which is the karmic result of some past wholesome action, pleasant feeling, and if we cling to it and grasp at it, that's the mind factor of greed. And so pleasant feeling is a, is a good karmic result, but we're relating to it unskillfully, so we wind up again with a pain in the knee. <laughs> if there's the pain in the knee, and we can just be with it, with mindfulness, it's an unwholesome fruit, unwholesome past action, but we're relating to it skillfully. So we're creating wholesome fruit, which brings about pleasant feeling. If there's pleasant feeling and we relate to it with openness, without grasping, without clinging, again we're creating wholesome karma, leading to freedom. I think I'll close this talk with something the Buddha said about reflecting on karma. It's one of the five things which if you think too much about, you go crazy. (laughs) And so, (laughs) I think it's helpful to come to a basic understanding of how it's working because it so determines and conditions our unfolding experience. And when we understand it on the level of different actions, of our actions in the world, it's possible to create a sense of play, a sense of spaciousness, a a sense of creativity of our own unfolding lives. We are creating the unfolding of our experience through our present actions. And when we understand it on the mind-moment level, that is how the mind is relating to particular experiences in each moment, we can begin to understand the process of conditioning and go from reconditioning the mind through attachment and aversion to deconditioning the mind from that to go from bondage into freedom. So, do you have any questions about any of this? This is really a shortened version it, it's an extreme, the, the understanding karma is so uh, intricate. Seven lives and five. Right, right. What I like about meditation is that there's no belief right. in you. Right, right. You know, and, and this thing of karma, I try to understand, I have tried to right. understand that it appears to me like a belief and right. speculation and I can't understand. Right. There are di- Did you hear the question or levels of existence, planes of existence, and it appears to be just speculation and a question of belief. And that what appeals to her about the practice is that it's direct experience that we're involved in. 
So there's always this doubt or question, you know, about what this means. You talk about karma or other planes. I'll, re- I'll respond to it in a few ways. I also came to the practice with a tremendous amount of skepticism because I had a background of training of Western philosophy and no connection at all, particularly, to any of these ideas or concepts. And so I started my practice with, with a basic non-belief in it. I thought that it was just part of you know, some Eastern mythology. Two things happened which began to open me to the possibility of their being true. One had to do basically with the letting go of my own preconceptions. I think it's Coleridge who had the phrase a willing suspension of disbelief. I stopped disbelieving and so I just came to a space of openness. Maybe it's possible. In that openness, as the practice went on and as, as the awareness of the mind process became clearer, on an intuitive level, the significance or meaning of karma and rebirth began to make more sense to me. And it's not anything that I could prove to you. There's no tangible proof. It's just to share with you my own process of a deepening intuitive sense. That it made sense. Something else that happened was the meeting of people who had the power of mind to actually see. And it's said in, in the very classical Buddhist teachings, not only in the Buddhist teachings actually, in many of the mystical religious traditions, some of the powers of mind which are possible to develop are that of seeing, of experiencing the other realms and also past lives. And again, there's no way of proving it. But the people I met who could do that how to say this there was no doubt in my mind of their truthfulness or integrity or depth of practice. And so when they said that they could do it and could see, it it inspired a confidence, especially since it was very much in alignment with the very classical teachings. In terms of understanding karma, even if you leave aside future lives and other realms, if you pay attention to our actions and the results in this life, you begin to get very powerful clues that it works. And it works in a very obvious way, as well as very subtle. I think that if you practice generosity a lot, 
you will begin to find that a channel is set up and that things keep coming back to you. It's been my own experience and with many people, just the more you give, it's like this natural law, the more you give, the more comes back, and the more you give, and you start cycling through. Now, I'm a... I'm a chocolate freak. (laughs) I love good chocolate. And I also like to give it away, to share it. And so whenever I get some good chocolate, I start giving. And it is just amazing to me. You know, a year ago, a year and a half ago, I was in Bodh Gaya in India. I ordained for six weeks. Very, it's a poor, poor place. And there's not much, you know, Western luxuries there. I was a monk, you know, in the meditation center there. Every day for six weeks, somebody gave me this piece of chocolate on my tray. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> it was so unlikely. <laughs> but it was just the force of that chocolate karma. <laughs> and so with all of this, in terms of understanding karma in our lives, on some levels, it, it's, it's pretty easy to tune into. When you're loving... Right? What comes back to you is good company. Right? And that's one of the, you know, you're surrounded by good friends. When you're not loving, so you're, you're surrounded by people who aren't loving back. And it's just, it's common sense on that level. On the other levels, I would recommend that willing suspension of disbelief. Not to believe it, not not to believe it. You know, it, if you don't know or don't have a sense for yourself, stay open. Yesterday and this morning, this question is coming. I have been thinking of it since I heard you. And, and one way, I, one explanation I, I gave myself this morning, and, and it helps me to understand, is that okay, the mind has no body, and that's why we need we need a body and a material world to express itself. It's like our feeling, or like music has no right. material right. thing, and 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 it and it exists. Mm. So, with this karma, like we have physical genes that, that goes from one life to the other, you know, to another life, although it's in another body, but the, the message is there. So the genes can be seen under a microscope and things like that. Well, in, in, in that world of, of mind, maybe there, there are some kind of spiritual genes that, that can be transmitted, and then I can understand this image of the fifth life and the seventh life and the thing. You know, like, it's a kind of a parallel with the physical world, but it's the only way I can understand Fine. it. Fine. No, I think that... Uh, There's something that carries. And, and that children will have a, a, a remembrance of something because it was closer to their previous life, but right. when, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It is, it is hard. Give, it is hard to conceive, given our Western background. I'll just tell you one a story of a, of a young Sri Lankan boy who at the age of three or two started chanting the Pali scriptures of the Abhidhamma. Very arcane, difficult texts. 
you know, two or three years old, started chanting fully. You know, and in the years since, he's, you know, extended his repertoire of, <laughs> of what he was chanting. And amazing. I mean, people knew right away that he was a very special being. He, he, he and Munindraji have a close relationship. And he started to remember his past lives. Uh, and he was a monk in the time of Buddha Gosa, who was one of the great commentators, uh, who lived in one of the great temples in Sri Lanka. And the boy took, this is a young boy, took um, some people to, these, to the ancient ruins of the temple and would point out places that had not been excavated yet. Right? Uh, here you'll find a library, and here you'll find this, and here you'll find that. And they dug it up, and it was just as he said. Amazing. You know, and there, there are a lot of, more recently, in the last five or ten years, more and more Westerners with kind of the scientific bias have gone to begin researching these claims and these stories. And there's like a growing evidence of these kinds of uh, situations where, where people actually remember with no way that they could have, that they could have known it. And so again, it's, it is hard to believe for most of us, but it's just, that's what I meant earlier when I said, the mind is vast, and then mostly we just have this very narrow little vision of, of what's going on. And it's not a question of belief, because that's not what's important. It's, it's the question of openness to the possibility. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.